Let's pray that God would help us as we think about those two passages. Heavenly Father, we do pray that our hearts will be open and our minds engaged with your word this morning uh, so that we can take encouragement and uh, perhaps correction uh, and we be spurred on because of what we reflect on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever gotten up really early in the morning to witness a sunrise? Perhaps you found yourself sitting in the chill of the pre-dawn darkness and you've noticed that there's a slight sort of smudge on the horizon over in the east which gets gradually stronger. And then uh, there's sort of a, a light and then you sort of get the glow on the edge of the horizon and then the sun comes up and then just like that there are sun rays and shadows cast across the whole landscape. I recall uh, a trek up a volcano in Bali once and I, I saw sunrise and I think it would have been a bit like that. Sunrise can not only be a very impressive and beautiful time, sunrise can also be an optimistic time as well. The day is still fresh, it's the early morning and the next you know, 12 hours or so spread out in front of you with opportunity and possibility. The new day dawns, morning has broken. So light can sometimes replace darkness but then sometimes we find light in the darkness. In the lands close to the poles in the deep uh, winter there's 24 hour darkness but as many of you would know uh, in 24 hour darkness near the poles we often have the aurora borealis or the aurora australis, the northern and the southern lights. I've never seen them but I believe that the light displays are incredible. It transforms the dark sky. Now darkness uh, can be restful and sometimes darkness can be exciting but darkness is often associated with gloom, uh, with confusion, with prejudice, with ignorance, with depression, with loneliness and with danger. And so in this sense darkness is something we would do almost anything to avoid or almost anything to escape. The Second World War would have been a time of great darkness and how great it was when people were liberated from that. There was dancing in the streets. Now Jesus is described in the Bible as the light of the world, as someone who brings light in the darkness. And Jesus is someone who can address darkness in all its many forms. And in today's passage you would have noticed uh, that we see that in Jesus a light has dawned. We read that in verse 16 and it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 9. So tonight, this morning's uh, sermon is entitled The Light Has Dawned. Uh, it's uh, from Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 to 25 and this is the last uh, sermon in our series for this term where we're looking at Matthew chapters 1 to 4. The outline on the screen behind me shows the four main points and it's set out in more detail on the insert you will have received when we came in. And firstly I want to consider how in verse 12 to 16 the stage is set for Jesus' public ministry. Verse 17 we get the opening lines of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, Then in verses 18 to 22 there is the support cast for Jesus' public ministry. And then in verses 23 to 25 the action really gets underway. So let's start with the first point and think about the stage being set in verses 12 to 16. Have you ever put on a show or a major event, perhaps a wedding or something like that? If you've done that, you would know that an awful lot of preparation takes place before the big event. 
On Friday night, I went to a farewell for Simon Manchester. Simon Manchester is a minister of the church in, in Sydney, North Sydney. I went to the church at North Sydney for 10 years and I still have a bit to do with Simon. And it was a big sort of send-off for him. He, he's, he's built that church, or God, through him, has built the church at North Sydney a lot over 30 years. It was a very encouraging and enjoyable night. There were food and drinks. There were speeches. There were videos. There was singing. There was prayer. And he's even presented with a book in which well-known Christians from around the world had each written a chapter. Uh, it was really quite a major event. But you sort of thought, boy, a lot of preparation went in to getting this event ready. Similarly, we see in Matthew chapters 1-4 to that an awful lot of preparation went in to getting Jesus ready for his public ministry, which is launched here. A lot of preparation had taken place. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 1, we looked at those genealogies and we saw how Jesus was descended from David, was descended from Abraham. You know, Jesus' coming was a long time planned. And then we went through and Jesus was protected uh, when people wanted to kill him. We saw that in chapter 2, I think it was. In chapter 3, what do we have in chapter 3? Yes, John the Baptist prepares the way, uh, prepares the way for Jesus. Jesus is baptised. And then in chapter 4, Jesus uh, gets through the testing or the temptation in the wilderness. He goes through all of this preparation and then in the second half of chapter 4, his public ministry really begins. The stage is set, the show is about to start. But as in the whole preparation period contained plenty of surprises, so too the setting of the stage contains a few surprises as well. Look at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now the stage is set for him to kick off, but look where the stage is set. Again, it's in Galilee. Now today if you put on a show and you want to make a big impression, it would be good if you could open it on Broadway or if you could open it in London or at least in Sydney and Melbourne. You're probably not going to open it in Burke in Outback New South Wales. Not that there's anything wrong with Burke, Probably I'd be there, it's a lovely place. It's just not where you're going to open a major production. Now, if you're going to kick off Jesus' ministry, people would think, oh, well, he's going to go to Jerusalem and do it there. But, of course, he's not in Jerusalem, he's up in Galilee. And as I've probably mentioned over recent weeks, and as you may know anyway, Galilee was not a particularly well-thought-of region by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Many Jerusalem Jews viewed Galilee with contempt. It was a bit of a backwater. And in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is told, a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, that's where the stage is set. Now, the Galilean uh, location is somewhat unorthodox, but it's highly appropriate because the location is, in fact, in fulfilment of Scripture. Uh, that was the Scripture which is read out in verses 14 to 16. You see, the location in Galilee fulfilled what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, to be specific, where it says, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It says uh, this was uh, written to fulfil. It was a fulfilment, and this is the fifth time in Matthew already where Jesus, or things relating to Jesus, are said to fulfil Old Testament prophecy. A long time planned. He was supposed to end up in Galilee. The stage is being set in the correct location. Now, not only is the Galilee location unorthodox, but entirely appropriate, 
when we reflect on it, is actually incredibly strategic as well because Galilee has a number of advantages to it. For a start, it's a long way away from Jerusalem where uh, the Jewish intelligentsia, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin could have really caused Jesus a lot of problems. They would have probably opposed many of the things he would have said. Galilee's a reasonable distance away and away from their, I guess, inhibiting influence. Uh, Secondly, it was also on an important trade route or a number of important trade routes, I believe, and it was a very fertile region. And as such, it supported a really large population. Now, some of you may have heard of a guy by the name of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian uh, of the late first century, but he did many other things as well. And at one point, did you know, Josephus was in fact governor of Galilee. And Josephus wrote in one of his uh, texts that in Galilee he estimated there were 204 villages which had 15,000 people or more. Now, I did the maths. That means, according to Josephus, that about 3 million people lived in Galilee. And Galilee was roughly the size of the greater Sydney region. Now, I think Josephus is sometimes prone to a bit of exaggeration, but Galilee was clearly a very densely populated area. And so you think, wow, it's not a bad place. He's got a large audience. It's a significant centre. He's away from Jerusalem and the inhibiting factors there. When you think about it, it's really quite a good place to start reaching a large audience with whatever it is that you want to say. And we soon learn that what he's going to say is in fact going to be something very good. Verse 16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's a case of darkness here giving way to light, of light being in the darkness. Jesus is light in the darkness. Now, uh, light is a good thing, and it's a good thing here, and Jesus brings good news. Now, uh, Jesus' message is good. Now, I wonder whether you, I'm sure you've all at some stage in your life received good news. And it's great to get good news. Perhaps what someone once said to you, it's a boy. That was probably good news. Or it's a girl. That was good news. Or perhaps you heard, and the winner is Sidani. And that was good news, right? Remember that. Uh, Good news is a great thing. And what Jesus is bringing is good news. Light is good. He is going to be light in the darkness. Now, why is the, the good news, which he's going to bring such good news? Well, because what Jesus is going to speak about, it's news of reality, it's news of rescue, and it's news which is highly relevant. It's not news for a slow news day. Jesus' message really should be on the front page of the papers every day. Because, and let me remind you of what many of you would already know, the good news which Jesus is going to bring is the good news that we can be forgiven. It's the good news that we can have our relationship with God restored. It's the good news that our shame can be removed. It's the good news that we can have ourselves washed clean. It's the good news that we can start to live the life that we were created to live. And it's the good news that we can look forward to heaven when we depart this life. Now I took a funeral and a thanksgiving service this week for Isabel Joins, who was a member of our 8 o'clock congregation here. And the family gave me some eulogies to read out. I read out the eulogies. And near the end of one of the eulogies, uh, the sentiment had been expressed that Isabel, who passed away, was now with her beloved Des. Des was her husband who passed away a couple of years earlier and I also did um, his funeral as well. A very lovely couple, both of them. And I indicated in my uh, address, which I usually give at a, ser- at a funeral, uh, that given my understanding that Des and Isabel were both Christian believers, saying that Isabel would be re- reunited with Des now was not, I didn't put, put it as bluntly as this, 
it's not just a lovely sentiment to make the pain feel less, it's actually a biblical truth. It's a trustworthy statement. It's not just a nice thought. How wonderful to be able to get up at a funeral and say something rather which is a trustworthy statement to give comfort to people rather than just express a nice sentiment which may not be true. You know, it's good news. What's the news which Jesus is bringing? So there we go. The stage is set, the light is dawning and the curtains are about to open and the actor, Jesus, not being metaphorical here, the actor walks onto the stage and we're about to hear Jesus' opening lines. Now the opening line of a play often really sends a signal as to what is about to follow. Uh, Take Shakespeare, for example. Here's one of Shakespeare's opening lines. Now is the winter of our discontent. It's from Richard III. And you can probably tell from the opening lines, this is not going to be one of his comedies. Okay? Well, there's another Shakespearean play which starts, If music be the food of love, play on. That's Twelfth Night. And you're sensing from that, this isn't probably not going to be one of his tragedies. You know, it, it signals what is to come. Well, Jesus is about to launch his public ministry. And here are the first words of his public ministry in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, have you heard that phrase before? You probably have, because that's exactly the way that John the Baptist's message was summarised back in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But Jesus is going to really build on what John brought and he's going to unpack and explain in far more detail what this actually means and is going to bring to us many of the implications of that as well. He's going to take it an awful lot further. Now we're told here that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now the kingdom of heaven is sometimes referred to in the New Testament as the kingdom of God. Uh, It can be understood as being the rule of God. Now what does it mean mean when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the rule of God has come near? Now what many people in that day and age would have assumed of the Jewish background was that's going to mean, oh, okay, God's king is going to be on the throne over Israel, the Romans will be gone, we'll set up a new kingdom just like in the days of King David and King Solomon. You probably knew that, many of you would have known that already, it's often said. But the sort of kingdom which Jesus is going to bring in is of course a far deeper kingdom, a far wider kingdom and a far longer lasting kingdom. He's going to bring in a kingdom whereby people live under his rule for eternity. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, well Jesus is near, the ruler of God's kingdom. As people become followers of Jesus, they live under God's rule, they become part of the kingdom of God. In the future on the day of judgment we're going to see that Jesus rules over everything, the kingdom of God, and then God's people will go to be with Jesus uh, forever living under his rule, the kingdom of God as well. Now being part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, being under God's rule is a great thing because it's great to be under the rule of a really good person or a really good God, as the case may be. Have you ever been in the workplace and worked for a really poor boss? By which poor I mean not a particularly good boss. A a, a not particularly good boss can create a culture of division in the workplace, can create discontent, can increase pressure, can create stress for people. But contrast a poor boss with a really good boss. A good boss can bring people together, can empower people, can encourage people, can inspire people. You want to be there. Jesus is in fact the good boss who we all want. 
So it's good to be in the kingdom of God, to be in the kingdom of heaven, to be under God's rule than under the rule of something or someone else. Now Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near. In the light of that, he wants us to do something rather. And Jesus says to his people then and to people today, repent. Now when you hear the word repent, many things could be brought to mind. But when I, I'd like to suggest to you, when you hear the word repent, think of the U-turn sign. Repentance means a change of direction. In here, it indicates an inward change of mind, a change of affections and a change of convictions. It means to turn from living our life for ourselves to living our lives for God. To stop going this way, doing whatever we do, whatever we jolly well want to do, whenever we feel like doing it, to going this way, living under God's rule and doing what he wants us to do, which in the long run is far better and in the short run is far better as well. It means we're, ult- we're turning from ultimately living a life which is sadly destructive to leading a life which is thankfully constructive. And to illustrate this, I'd like you to imagine that you're a spoon. That's right. Just imagine for a moment that you're a spoon. Okay, you know what a spoon is? Perhaps you're a nice stainless steel spoon or a silver-plated spoon or something like that. Yet, for most of your life, even though you're a spoon, you've lived the life of a shovel. You've spent yourself, your life trying to move rocks, dirt, bits of broken concrete. If you're of a nice little spoon and you're doing all that sort of stuff, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to get bent, you're going to get scratched, you're going to get discoloured, you'll probably have a headache, you'll probably feel dissatisfied with your life, you'll be carrying injuries and you may ultimately break. You're not going to have a really good time of a spoon, as a spoon, are you? But imagine how liberating it would be if you stopped living as a shovel but you started living what, the way you're supposed to be, as a spoon. And suddenly you find yourself being slipped into a bowl of exotic soup or creamy gelato. And not only that, imagine you find yourself getting sort of repaired and polished up and you're happily living the life, much better to live the life of a spoon as a spoon than a shovel. I hope you're getting the metaphor. It's much better to live the way we were created to live, not to live in some other way which is ultimately going to cause damage to ourselves and others. How do we do that? We stop going that way, we repent and follow Jesus. Or if we're following Jesus, we continue to live a repentant life following Jesus. How do we do that? We ask Jesus to forgive us and say we want to follow him. Now, this is the sort of message of repentance that John the Baptist brought and which Jesus brought as well. And it's interesting that in John the Baptist's case, he was telling Jewish people to repent. Now, it's interesting. John didn't assume that because people were from the Jewish race, the people, the God's people from the Old Testament, that he thought they still needed to repent. They, they couldn't just rest on their, um, you know, racial background. Similarly, today people need to repent. We, we can't rely on the fact that, oh, my dad was a bishop in the Anglican Church and his dad was a bishop in the Anglican Church or was a minister or we've been a church-going family here for 30 years, you know. Uh, the fact that we're from a church background doesn't get us right with God. We need to repent. Uh, and so can I remind you or perhaps tell you that, um, you know, just being a church attender doesn't make us a follower of Jesus. We need to repent. We need to make that decision. We need to ask Jesus to forgive us and to follow him. And I, I say that fairly regularly. And I, look, I have no one in mind here, but often it's the case, I think, that someone may sit in church and go, oh, yeah, here's Steve Liggins banging on about repentance again. I think I'll just ignore him for a while and let it go away and I'll have a nice morning tea afterwards. Can I say that if you had never in your life have got to the point where you've asked Jesus to forgive you and you said, right, I want to follow you, you actually need to make that decision at some point because that is what is going to change your relationship with God and it brings you all the benefits which I referred to earlier. So I guess a good question to ask you is, have you repented? And if you have, thanks to God, let's continue living the repentant life. 
Well, we're about to see in the next few verses, verses 18 to 22, a group of people who did turn to follow Jesus. We're going to look at some of Jesus' support cast. And here we reach point three, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Once they left their nets and followed him. Now the first thing to note here, which is interesting, is that Jesus calls them. Now what you probably didn't know is that in the first century, it was usually disciples who chose their teacher. Now you or I might sort of think, oh, which rabbi do I want to follow? We'd look around, oh yeah, Rabbi Jones, we'll go and follow him. This is not a case of people choosing their rabbi. Here, the rabbi, Jesus, he's the one doing the choosing. He's going around and choosing those who are going to follow him. He takes the initiative. And it's the same today. God calls people, or Jesus calls people to follow him today. And here's the reminder, have you responded? Have you repented? Well, for Peter and Andrew, this following of Jesus meant a decisive change in their life. It really did make a decisive change. See, they left their nets, which meant they left their old way of life to follow Jesus. Now, a little bit later in verses 21 and 22, two other brothers have a decisive change in their life when they follow Jesus. They were in the family business with their dad, Zebedee, and they leave working with their father to follow Jesus as well. So for the four of them, it's quite a big U-turn. They go from doing what they were doing to now doing something quite different as they follow Jesus. So following Jesus for them was not a pleasant Sunday afternoon ramble when it was convenient. It implied an ongoing, close, personal attachment to Jesus. Following Jesus implies ongoing, close, personal attachment. Now, what I said, that's a good thing, it's a liberating thing, but it means that uh, following Jesus means that Jesus is our Lord, our Captain, our Boss, etc. So for Peter, James, Andrew and John, uh, their following of Jesus for the next three years was not going to be like enrolling in a university course where apparently I've heard that sometimes people skip lectures at university and don't go to all their classes and really just engage with it to the level they feel like it. It was more like a three-year ministry apprenticeship where you lived, slept, ate, travelled, ministered with someone and learnt that way. So it really did involve a close personal attachment. And it's the same today. If we're followers of Jesus, it's a close personal attachment, it involves real commitment. And then things start to move into full swing here in chapter 4 with verse 23 and following where the action really commences. It starts to summarise what Jesus is really setting out to do. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And that's what he's going to do for the whole most of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to teach, he's going to proclaim, he's going to heal. Now the priority in Jesus' ministry was teaching and preaching the good news about the Kingdom of God and unpacking that. However, he was also concerned with people's physical needs as well. We see him here healing people. Why is it that Jesus went about healing people? Well, some people might sort of think, oh look, he just healed people to get a bit of attention. People would think, wow, look at him healing people. I'll listen to what he has to say as well. But if Jesus had wanted, to perform, had wanted to perform miraculous acts to get people's attention, he could have you know, sort of gone, and then there were fireworks in the sky. Or he could have sort of thought, hey, why don't I levitate two feet off the ground and travel around sort of you know, levitating? People sort of think, wow, someone's levitating, you don't say that every day, I better listen to him. I mean, he could have done anything like that, but he doesn't. 
the sorts of miraculous things he does tend to be things which are, show genuine love or assistance for people, you know, casting out evil spirits or healing people. Jesus was someone who showed his love by his words but also his deeds. He was concerned with people's spiritual needs particularly but also with their physical needs as well. You can probably see where I'm going to go with that, which it should be the same for us. We should be able to live our life by word and deed uh, and show a genuine concern for people's spiritual needs as well as uh, their physical needs too. Now that's something we want to do as a church. Now on the sign at the back of our church it says who we are, compassion, clarity, integrity. And if you studied our church's uh, New Shoots Vision for Growth booklet which came out a couple of years ago and you read the section on compassion, you would see that we aim to be moved in compassion by the spiritual needs of the lost. But also we need to be moved in compassion by the earthly needs of the downtrodden. We're concerned for spiritual needs and physical needs. That's our desire. Now, when you look at your life, I wonder how you are faring in this area. You may be someone who has a real, uh, genuine appreciation for the spiritual needs of those around us, which is absolutely full on, tick, 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 tick. But do we also display a concern for people's physical needs as well? By the same token, some people are very much engaged with people's physical needs around them and do great work there. But I would just say to, uh, to people like that, do we also appreciate the spiritual needs around us? Jesus addressed spiritual needs but also physical needs. We want to think in terms of how we use our prayers, how we use our money and how we use our time to see whether we've got both things happening as well. Well, this is Jesus' ministry. Uh, First century Galilee would have been looking for a Messiah. First century Galilee would have appreciated good teaching like the next person and uh, first century Galilee would really have appreciated the healing ministry which Jesus had undertaken. So it comes as no surprise that the Jesus movement really gains momentum. And in verse 25 we read that large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's the ten cities, uh, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. And then the book goes on to describe what that looks like. Let me make a few concluding points. We finally reached the point in the Gospel of Matthew where his public ministry really gets underway. His public, life-changing, light-casting ministry. And Jesus is someone who's going to bring light in the darkness. He did it in the first century and Jesus can bring light in the darkness for people today. Now during the week I drove Ruth Gilmore who's from our 8 o'clock service who will be known to many of you. Uh, She's often seen seen pounding the pavements of our suburb uh, when you probably drive past her a lot. Uh, I drove her to a funeral service over in the Sutherland Shire and so I had an hour and a quarter in the car away with Ruth and then an hour and a quarter back. It was a wonderful time. And um, while we were talking, uh, Ruth recalled a a young lady called Pauline with whom she worked uh, back in the 1950s. And uh, this lady, Pauline, Ruth said was quite a nice woman uh, but she was a fairly rough sort of person. Uh, Ruth confessed that she probably, not Ruth, but Pauline probably drank a bit too much and uh, in the workplace she was known for being quite forthcoming with a plethora of dirty jokes. Now, Ruth said that in the workplace, uh, this meant that you know, often people would laugh with this other girl, Pauline, but then there were quite a few people in the workplace who didn't greatly respect Pauline because of the way she carried on. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, I'm just painting a picture for you as to what the workplace was like. Now, the year is 1959. So guess what happened in 1959? Billy Graham came to Sydney. I wonder what's going to happen now. Pauline at work thought, oh, I might go along to Billy Graham just for a laugh, make a bit of fun of it, come back and you know, rip a few people about what had taken place. 
And so Pauline went along to hear Billy Graham and you guessed it, she went along and was converted. Her life was entirely changed. And I think it was the day after Pauline had been to the Billy Graham that she went to work and Ruth came into work and walked past Pauline and didn't recognise her. Apparently so changed was her whole demeanour. And a bit later she thought, hold on, was that Pauline? And sure enough it was. Someone else came up, 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 up to Ruth at work and said to her, who's that lady out there? And Ruth said, that, that's Pauline. And the other guy apparently sort of was quite surprised. Apparently the fact that her, her life had changed by coming to follow Jesus, that it actually impacted what she actually looked like to people or how she presented herself. And then Ruth said that um, Pauline's life had changed for the better and although that she lost contact with Pauline, she believed that her life headed off in a really good and positive direction. There's a little example I heard of this week of Jesus bringing light in the darkness, which is what Jesus does. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so the big idea this morning is that light is good, repent or continue to keep living a repentant life and follow. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage at the end of uh, the whole section of preparatory material in Matthew chapters 1 to 4. We see your son's ministry really getting underway. He is light in the darkness then, he's light in the darkness today. Lord, we do pray that we would repent and follow or continue to live repentant lives and continue to follow uh, the Lord, the Captain, the Master who we really want to have and live the sorts of lives that you've created for us to live. We thank you for this wonderful message which we reflect on this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.